This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. It's good to see you and hear from you. We've got Nam- N- Naomi. Is that pronounced your? Is that your? Nave. Nave. Okay, sorry. O'Flynn. And I believe you used to live in Dunedin, didn't you? I did, indeed. Nice to see you. Yes. And I think we met at some protests and maybe we interviewed each other. She is now the program director at Greenpeace. And you can uh, go to this uh, podcast later on by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to community or chaos so welcome, friends, to Community or Chaos. Hopefully more community in the future of this program. And it's really good to see you and it'll be good to talk about Greenpeace. Could you brief, very briefly tell us why you joined Greenpeace HRO in New Zealand? Yeah, so I started with um, Greenpeace back in 2008, actually, as a, as a door-to-door fundraiser. <laughs> so, um, and had a long kind of standing um, involvement with Greenpeace as an activist and then through um, campaigning on deep sea oil in Dunedin, um, worked very closely alongside Greenpeace through that whole um, massive campaign. And um, just in the last two years, um, started as the program director. So for me, it was a really natural fit to come work at an organization where, I've, um, where I have worked alongside them for such a long time. And a lot of my friends now work there who I've grown to know and love over many years of campaigning. And um, it's just a really wonderful team of really dedicated and highly skilled people. Well, it's good to start out with a bit of optimism considering the subject matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you talk about the origins of Greenpeace? I, th- I think it's fair enough mentioning this because uh, this program this year is sponsored by Quakers ATRO in New Zealand. And I think Quakers may have been involved in the founding of Greenpeace in British Columbia. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, um, so Greenpeace uh, began out of the Don't Wake a, Don't Make a Wave Committee, which was founded by um, anti-war activists, Quakers, as you point out, um, and I guess hippies of the time in Vancouver. Um, and in 1971, um, a small group of them took this little boat, the Phyllis Cormac, up to Amchuk Island off the coast of Alaska to protest underground nuclear tests. And they were bearing witness there, um, which, as you well know, I'm sure is a Quaker activist tradition. Um, and the two traditions that Greenpeace have used for many years are bearing witness and direct action. So this was a core part of um, of Greenpeace becoming. So, so while they were unsuccessful at actually stopping those underground nuclear tests um, in 1971, they did spark a movement just because they were so brave and it was um, such an audacious thing to go and do of put yourself in the way of, of these tests. Um, and it's also worth noting, I think, that within a year of Greenpeace sparking off in Canada. Um, In 1972, the Vega, um, a small sailing yacht, sailed from Aotearoa to Mururoa to protest the French nuclear testing in the Pacific. So Greenpeace Aotearoa actually started um, pretty quickly after the whole Greenpeace movement launched. So Greenpeace has continued in the tradition of direct action and nonviolence. 
Yeah, nonviolent direct action, um, we call it NVDA. Um, it's still a core fundamental part of Greenpeace. Um, we have a really strong direct action culture here at Greenpeace Aotearoa, um, which has obviously been a little bit tricky under COVID, um, but we're continuing to find ways to do creative confrontation. Um, so for us, uh, direct action means actually physically stopping something that's that's bad and that we want to oppose or starting something that's good. So it's, it's not just um, a symbolic action, it's actively changing the thing that you're trying to change. Um, so we've um, sailed flotillas out to confront deep sea oil um, by sailing in the exclusion zone. We've had people um, in the water jumping in front of seismic testing vessels. Um, we've climbed smokestacks to stop um, coal incinerators, locked onto pipes to stop irrigation schemes. The list kind of goes on, um, but it's still a very core part of what we do. So... How would you compare yourself with Sea Shepherd? My wife asked this question. Oh, interesting. Um, I guess slightly different because we we focus on a wide range of issues. So our, our two core issues as a global organization right now are climate change and biodiversity loss. Um, so while we do have a lot of similarities in terms of campaigning at sea in boats and um, and putting ourselves in, in the way of the problem, um, we also do a lot of online campaigning and sustained campaigning through political lobbying and a lot of other tactics as well. How is uh, the uh, COP26 conferences or the COP conferences, there's only been a whole series of them every few years, Are they produce serious action? And how do you feel about the some people would describe comp festivals as a talk feast. How would you feel about what they've done and, and uh, where they're going? Yeah, I would agree that they are a talk fest, but I would go further and say it's actually worse than that because it's not just global leaders getting together to talk about climate action and producing nothing. I think they actually have co-opted a lot of the climate movement and people around the world into thinking this is the place where change happens. And so people put a lot of faith and energy into the COP process, thinking that this is where change is going to happen. And I feel pretty strongly convinced that that is not the place where change happens. Uh, yes. Uh, until Paris, I actually I was one of those people who had a lot of hope from the conferences. But they've never produced anything that requires... I didn't even produce any treaties that require government action or corporate action, have they? They've produced pledges, but they haven't been able to hold anybody to account. Yeah, that's right. They produce pledges, um, non-binding targets. Um, and I think the thing that was most laughable out of the most recent COP26 was world leaders pledging to urge world leaders to take stronger action. So it was just the people who are holding the power um, asking people who are holding the power to do something. So it was a, it was a little bit kind of catch 22. And it was, um, it was reminded me really strongly of that moment when we saw Justin Trudeau um, in Canada, marching with the school strikers. <laughs> and, it was, and it's like, you know, you hold the power to make this change. Um, maybe doing it is better than pledging to do it. Yes. I mean, uh, going with walking with school strikers and at the same time, digging up the most dirty fossil fuels in the world. And pretending not to be the power holder in that situation. What's the worst case scenario in global warming and environmental degradation? I hate to ask this question, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's hard It's hard to answer without putting a too fine a point on it, but um, the IPC, IPCC says um, that climate change left unchecked will cause untold human suffering. Um, and that's before you even start to look at non-human suffering. Um, you know, where I think we can expect to see huge regular disasters increase, increasing um, inequality <coughs> and more pandemics um, as we've seen over the last year. So we really need to do something about this soon. We can't really separate non-human and human suffering, can we, in the world? No, I don't think we can. Um, are, you, are we, you know, are we above nature somehow apart from nature? I thought I always thought we were mammals. Yeah, I think that's one of the that's one of the things we talk about at Greenpeace. Actually, is it's really important for people to understand that we are.
part of nature actually and so when we mess with nature it messes with us because we're part of that system now where do we go from here really in terms of climate action yeah i think there's there's a lot we can do from here um you know there are huge strong climate movements all across the globe and i think it's about us looking at our countries and saying okay what do we need to do to actually reduce emissions we've sent our politicians off to cop they've come back with some pledges um and some commitments to reduce emissions but unfortunately in the case of new zealand a lot of how we've talked about reducing our emissions is actually through offsetting our emissions which means going and buying carbon credits somewhere else um, and actually not really doing much to reduce our own emissions and so i think if we can um hold our politicians to account, hold our polluting corporations to account in our countries and actually work to to get policies in place that bring emissions down. That's what we need to do rather than focusing on the numbers that come out of COP. Um, so here in Aotearoa, one of, the, one of the really big glaring things is that agriculture has been largely left out of the plan for how we reduce emissions. And they've been skating on a free pass for a really long time. So it's about how do we bring in the policies that reduce agricultural emissions? Is this why people like Norman Russell has gone from party politics to direct action? Oh, I wouldn't want to speak for why Russell's moved from politics to direct action, but um, but certainly um, Russell is a strong advocate of nonviolent direct action for tackling this crisis. Now, what's New Zealand doing? I mean, um, in the last 30 years, we haven't really reduced our carbon emissions, and the methane must be going up tremendously. Yep, our emissions are going up. Um, we've seen an exponential increase in dairy cows, which we know are um, some of our, it's, it's our most polluting sector. We've got 50% of our emissions come from agriculture and about 50% of those emissions come from dairy. Um, and at the moment, you know, we're talking about continuing more and bigger and expanding. Um, so what we really need to do is put regulation in place. And, and one of the core things that we're calling for at Greenpeace is we're calling for a phase out of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, which um, is what allows too much grass to grow on land that maybe shouldn't be farmed, some of it, um, to allow too many cows to then um, pee all over the land and, and allows the nitrates to drink down and uh, sorry, to leach down into our drinking water um, and pollute the climate. Um, so that's one of the core calls from us. Dairy, uh, uh, dairy has changed a lot in the last 40 years, hasn't it? It definitely has, yes. Was this bound to happen when we got rid of all our other industries and just put all our um, uh, production into uh, sending uh, powdered milk to Asians who, were, who we know is really, uh, isn't necessarily the best thing for them to drink anyway? I don't think it's necessarily around around shutting down other industries, um, yeah. you know, because here in, in, in Aotearoa, we have a, until COVID, a, a booming tourism industry as well. I think it's about that idea that we must have growth at all costs in an industry um, and we must find ways to use the resources that we would like to keep booming. So um, increasing gas use to increase um, the amount of fertilizer we produce, to increase the amount of farming we can do, and it becomes this, this cycle um, and it's about growth rather than what's good for the land, what's sustainable for farmers, um, and what's best for our country as a whole. Oh, I know of small farmers who say have 70 or less than 100 cows who don't do all this. And they survive. They have trouble surviving because they have to compete with Fonterra, but they do survive. Yeah, they do survive. And there's actually a really interesting growing movement of regenerative organic farmers um, sprouting up who who aren't using um, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, who aren't um, mud farming, um, who are doing things differently and, and working with the land and having really great outcomes. But don't we actually need a variety of things we should do in New Zealand? Not just one thing or two things. Don't we yeah, need think... to look at our our economics? Because aren't we saddled with certain economic goals and certain things we can't do economically because it's no longer orthodox and 
things we must do, like continued unlimited growth. Yeah, we really do need to look at, at the industries that we're supporting here and and what jobs um, we want to create for the just transition um, to a low carbon economy. And I think that's really important for us to do. Um, but also those moments where we have big spending, such as um, in the, the COVID recovery fund, um, where there was this incredible moment where there was a huge amount of money to pour into the economy to do things differently. Um, and that wasn't done. We, we built more roads. <laughs> Um, and it was a real moment to say, like, what other kinds of jobs do we want here? Do we want to, you know, do we want to invest in people learning how to build renewable energy? Like, mm. the the possibilities were endless at that point, and they were squandered on business as mm. usual. You could have built, you could have um, had more public buses. You could have trains. Yep, you could. Yeah, we could have had. Um, we did, we could have built for the transport. future instead of for the past. Yeah, and I, it, we were really hopeful that that was going to be a moment where we did build for the future. Um, and what we learned is that this government is still very conservative when it comes to doing things differently and tackling climate change. And so we just really need to keep the pressure on. I'm going to play some music and then we'll come back. I am one more time in light of this setting sun shadows move silently manifest my heaving breath and will we make it all will it break us all Will it carry us away? Carry us away. I look around, I see our dreams, children laughing so beautiful. Just call in the distance, a curtain falls, and will we make it all? Will it break us all? Will it carry us away? Carry us away. Flowers just fragrant love. Seen holy cities, seen open minds. Beach forest dreamed of golden pond. And will we make it all? Will it break us all? Will it carry us away? Who will 
Hello, friends. We're talking the name O'Flynn, and she's the co-program director of Greenpeace New Zealand, and we're talking about climate change, basically, and also environmental degradation, um, which affects the whole environment. Can you briefly talk about why uh, why methane is so important? Uh, and it's so dangerous. Then we'll go on to what we can do about it. Yeah, so methane is important. So methane is a greenhouse gas like carbon dioxide. Um, and it's largely been ignored from a lot of the conversations about climate change for the last couple of decades um, because we've been really focused on worrying about carbon dioxide. But methane... Um, is actually a much more potent greenhouse gas. So while it's short-lived, so it doesn't stay in the atmosphere for as long as carbon dioxide does, um, it it does cause more climate pollution for the time that it's there. And because climate change is this game where if you don't win quickly, you lose, um, what happens in the next um, in the next decade is so important. So what, what the, the carbon pollution that the methane is causing right now is uh, sorry the carbon pollution the greenhouse gas pollution that the methane is causing right now um, is a big problem and in Aotearoa it's a really big problem because um, a lot of the um, greenhouse gas emissions that we produce are methane from farming from dairy farming specifically is it unethical to leave it all to the market is it unethical and unsuccessful to leave uh, mitigating climate to the market and sell off our uh, uh, promises to poorer countries? Around the carbon off, uh, yeah, offset gone. market? Yeah, yeah completely I mean, unethical to leave our pollution to, to the market, especially the offset market. Um, uh, we had our global executive director, um, Jennifer Morgan was protesting inside COP recently, actually, at the um, at the offsets um, working group, basically, because offsets are a scam. We can't just pay someone else to not pollute so that we can continue to pollute. It doesn't make sense at all. Um, and it's also unfair for us to say, oh, we're just going to pay some poor countries to not pollute so that we can continue to do it ourselves as a developed nation. Um it's ridiculous, and we really do need to be looking at what we can all do to reduce our emissions immediately, as well as looking at the ways that we can keep the carbon in the ground. Even so-called uh, left-wing parties and environmental parties, including Green Party to some extent, go along with this. Why? not sure exactly why everyone goes along with this i think it's because the idea of um making the changes that we need to change that we need to do feels scary to people um but actually i think we'll end up with a a thriving planet and better communities if we if we cut our emissions um i think there's also this belief that um that the market does solve things um but we've seen over and over and over again and certainly in the entire course of my lifetime that the market does not solve these issues i remember a movie called hot air ah, about yes. environmental uh, climate change and the fact that new zealand didn't do anything about it under the labor government in the past and peter hoskin was the minister of the environment and he came out fairly honestly and he said we were set to produce a carbon tax, including on methane and on um, agriculture. And it got so much pressure from the business community. He said the business, it was even the thing that worried the most with the pressure from the business community, not necessarily the farming community. And so they backed off. And I guess that still happens. Yeah, I think that I think you're right, and and that's true at COP as well. You know, there is such a strong presence of industry, the fossil fuel industry, and and big agribusiness at the COP that that is really hindering okay. progress. What would give you hope? Uh, what kind of actions would give you hope, and where do those actions come from? What would give me hope um, here in Aotearoa, firstly, would be to see our government tackling the climate crisis with the same um, tenacity that they've been 
tackling the, the COVID pandemic, um, where we really stop and say, okay, we all need to do things differently and we need to look at what we need to do differently. Um, take a pause and then do the thing that's right for all of us, which is, um, which is regulating polluters. Um, and that's what I'd love to see here. Okay, how do we make that happen here and other places? Is it um, just asking our politicians to do it and hoping they'll take our advice? No, I think it's doing. I think it's doing what we what we know works, um, and the way that we've got most of the big environmental wins over the last um, four, well, fifty years really, um, has been through activism, through challenging power. Um, so it's not necessarily about going and. Um, talking to politicians, it's about challenging the power. So often it's about taking direct action. It's about protesting. It's about civil disobedience and making sure that our politicians know that we will not stand for this continued lack of action on climate change. Do you think we need to encourage people to think differently about economics? Our economics seem to be based on unlimited growth and competition and so-called free choice is this a paradigm that needs to be challenged yeah the idea of unlimited growth definitely needs to be challenged um we can't have unlimited growth in a finite system and our planet is a finite system we have environmental boundaries that we cannot cross if we want to live on this planet um and so we really need to have our economies and our economic thinking fitting within the bounds of our environment that really does need to change and what we've seen um, over decades is that this idea of green growth also doesn't work um, we have to look at doing things differently yes i was reading a paper recently saying that questioning whether renewables in developed countries was the total answer because they suggested as you got more renewable energy you just built more things, spent more, um, and commerce went ahead. And so you ended up with the same amount of carbon or more, unless you also somehow changed the direction of the economy or regulated the economy. Yeah, that's right. So when we're looking at energy systems, we can't just put renewables into the system we also have to remove coal, oil, and gas. And so that's why it's really important that while we're campaigning for the positive solutions, that we're campaigning to solarize public housing and solarizing schools and um, better public transport, we also need to work really hard to get our energy systems off coal, oil, and gas. Um, otherwise, we're just putting more energy into the system for it to continue exactly the same way. I suppose with... Um carbon cost of flying that we actually need to look at using ocean transport more. With Greenpeace, with their boats, have they found ways of reducing carbon? Um, yes. So actually, our the most recent Rainbow Warrior, the Rainbow Warrior 3, um, spends most of its time under sail. Uh, it can it can get the engines into gear, but it mostly is sailing. Um, and we're looking at other options for our future fleet um, of our boats. But one of the things that we do think is that we need to make sure that we don't turn it into kind of carbon purity. We have to also do what we can do within the system to fight the system. And so we're not going to stop sailing our boats um, because they're not 100% carbon neutral at this point. It's more important that we're out there fighting the fossil fuel industry um, while we're working to find solutions. Can you see a future where actually large freighters have a combination of some sort of hybrid where they use sails and solar panels as well as uh, diesel or whatever? I do not know enough about how those things work to honestly answer that, but I would hope so. I'm sure, you know, that humans um, have existed for many thousands of years without um, without burning as much coal, oil, and gas as we do now. So there will be ways that we can do this. We already know that um, moving things by water is more carbon-friendly, and not passengers so much because yeah. of the way the way um, passenger ships are developed, but. 
freight is actually more carbon friendly than flying freight. Mm-hmm. But how do we get people to? We have to relook at the economy. To if we're going to ask people to give up things, like if you, oh, I know in my neighborhood, probably most of the houses have three cars in front of them. Many of them have two or three cars. And many people also live some distance from work. Do we need to present a, build a fairer, more equal economy if we're asking people to give up things? Don't we have to offer them more equity? I think that's 100% right. I don't think fixing climate change is about saying you get rid of your cars and you stop driving to work and um, you turn your lights off and take shorter showers. It's about us. It's about us looking at the entire system and how it works and investing in infrastructure that makes our whole system work in a more environmentally friendly way for all of us. Um, So we need to be heavily investing in better public transport options. I mean, in places with great public transport, people don't own three cars. <laughs> um, this is a direct result of underinvestment in public transport in New Zealand over many decades. Um, and so we need to be looking at all of the systems in Aotearoa like that. I, I'm aware that in Wellington Regional Council and Wellington City Council was actually called for the re-public ownership of buses because private bus service has failed them so badly, in especially recent years. Will you have any comment on that? Yeah, I think, I think there's a strong case to be made for public ownership of public utilities, and I think buses are a great example of that. Um, and if public transport could be free, that would be wonderful as well. Should things like energy transport and other things that the public's dependent on be dependent on making a profit no and i think that's that's part of the problem as soon as we're pushing um as soon as we're pushing services to make a profit that people rely on to live and people depend on um we aren't necessarily making the right choices for people. And I think we can really see that in energy prices um, because the privatization of energy is uh, so strong, strongly driven to make a profit. Um, We see people cold in their homes over winter with very expensive energy bills. Meanwhile, the energy companies are still making huge profits. If If you solve the problem by subsidizing energy, you pay people extra for winter electricity and the same thing with housing aren't you actually subsidizing private ownership and subsidizing the wealthy I think you can look at it that way but I I also think you have to be pragmatic about the short term solutions for people and the truth is um, there are a lot of people um, surviving on very little um, with very expensive energy costs but you're right that to actually tackle that core issue, we do need to start regulating the um, the gentailers. I mean, if they actually had to pay their full cost of running and not overcharge, maybe they'd be willing to sell it back to the government cheaply. <laughs> yes, that would potentially. Would you be happy to see a political party that suggested that? Yes, personally, I would. Yes. Now, how do we educate ordinary people and how do we give people hope? Because I think one thing that COVID has shown us is that people under pressure, unless they have hope, can really have weird beliefs from online in misinformation and such. Yeah, that's right. So I think there's two pieces there. One around how do we educate normal people? I think most normal people, to use that term. Well, I'm a normal um, person. Yeah, yeah, we're all a bit normal. Um, I think most people understand that 
climate change is real. It exists. Um, it's caused by humans. Um, most people know that and understand that. I can I can say um, 10 years ago, I don't think that was necessarily the case here in Aotearoa, but it's, it's true now. People are concerned about climate change. So I, I really think we need to spend less time focusing on convincing people that climate change is real and more time um, talking to people about what they can do to help create the change we need to see from our governments and corporations. And I think that's where the hope comes in. Um, you know, this idea of managing your carbon footprint. Um, I think it was Exxon Mobil, maybe even that created that idea that fra uh, coined that phrase. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Um, and it's this idea that you personally are responsible for the climate crisis because you pollute, because you didn't change your light bulbs and you took a shower that was too long and you drove to work. And it's basically um, the fossil fuel industry pushing the blame for this crisis that they caused. They've spent millions and billions of dollars denying and building a case for climate change denial over the years and um, shifting the blame onto individuals. And I think that creates a huge sense of powerlessness in people. And I think what I've heard over the years a lot from people is this idea that I can't participate in climate change activism because I still drive my car and because I still um, need to fly to see my family and I still do these polluting things. And that whole mindset is created on purpose by the fossil fuel industry um, to shift the blame. And it's really disempowering. And what we need people to do is to be able to see through that and see, actually, even if you stop doing every polluting thing you're doing in your life, we've still got the fossil fuel industry out there, not only continuing to dig and mine for fossil fuels, but actually planning to expand more. And so what we need to do is work within the system that we're in um, to fight it and to, and to bring those polluters down. And I think what we need to see is the end of the fossil fuel industry um, and a complete change in how we do industrial agriculture. Um, and there are so many different ways that people can participate in this. Can this be a learning experience for what kind of society we want to live in? I think um, one of the exciting things about participating in activism, especially climate activism, is in a lot of the organizing that you do. Um, and I certainly found that in grassroots organizing, a lot of the organizing that you do is so helpful for thinking about how you build community for the future um, and what the world could look like if, if things were organized differently. Um, and you get to see what it looks like when, when you work um, in consensus or when you work um, to try and achieve um, achieve a value-based outcome rather than just something that's um, profit-based. How do you... Do you think that the, the, your generation is starting to think about these things more radically than um, the generation that grew up in the 80s? I think the really interesting thing on climate action is I don't think it's so generational. Um, I feel like throughout my time in climate activism, I've worked with people <laughs> in their 90s right through down to um, seeing 12-year-olds facilitate meetings. Um, we really are all in this together. And it's this unique moment in time where we all have to win now. It can't wait um, for, for the teenagers to grow up and to become the leaders and make things different. It kind of requires... Um, all hands on deck now. And so I don't think it's necessarily about my generation um, thinking about this more radically, but I think we're all starting to think about this more radically. And I think um, for a long time back, there's some really great stories about back at the first COP um, 27 years ago now, um, where where there's this idea that actually we shouldn't be too radical as a climate movement because, because this issue affects everyone. We need everyone to be on board with it. And so we shouldn't do anything that might make us look extreme or radical or upset the cart too much. And I think over a number of decades, um, the climate movement sort of conservatized itself a little bit by saying, oh, don't do that because some people won't like it and don't do this because some people won't like it. Um, and I think what where we've reached now, the point we've reached now is that actually we've been nice we've been we've done things by the books we've done things inside the tent outside of the tent we've tried every possible 
um, legitimate avenue and now the only option for us is um, is civil disobedience and um, to really stand together and, and take radical action to, to face a very radical problem. I think in some ways even the scientists were holding back until recently. Yeah, and the scientists, I mean, scientists are, are naturally conservative, right? It's part of the nature of, of science of not um, overstating their facts. Um, but I think you're right that that, yeah, the scientists were holding back and they've been um, much more outspoken over the last number of years. And I think we're just all realizing that um, it's it's kind of now or never and there's a lot of people fighting for it. Do you ex- hope to see um, a upheaval of, of a great number of people in New Zealand and in other places uh, move on climate action? Yeah, I mean, thousands of people are already moving on climate action. Um, You know, we saw with the climate strikes um, a few years ago, we we saw huge numbers of people out on the streets across the world. And I think it's about taking that next step. It's about saying, yep, we've been out there visible saying we want climate action. And now it's about asking for accountability on what that climate action looks like. I mean, um, it was off the back of huge protests and the massive oil and gas campaign here in Aotearoa that um, Jacinda Ardern announced the ban on offshore oil and gas, on new offshore oil and gas, um, just after she was elected. And that was a great moment where it felt like um, civil society had spoken loudly and clearly and held power and made that change. But it does seem like Jacinda Ardern has lost her kind of what to do next on climate checklist Um so we need to bring her back to that. And I think the single biggest thing we could do in Aotearoa to cut our own emissions would be to phase out synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. So we should be holding Jacinda Ardern accountable for reducing our pollution and um, holding agribusiness to account. How do you bring that to their attention? Um, many ways. Um, obviously, at Greenpeace, we spend a lot of time lobbying. We're writing submissions. Um, we're engaging with the public, but we are also doing a lot of creative confrontation, um, nonviolent direct action. Again, as I said, <laughs> COVID's made that a little bit tricky recently. Um, but we're going to be out there um, making sure that this isn't something that the government can continue to ignore or put on the back burner until until they feel like dealing with it. The <coughs> COVID is almost less important than climate change. In fact, I think it is, really. Yes, We're going to survive COVID. Yeah, Um, a good friend and colleague um, of mine says COVID is not an extinction moment. (laughs) Even uh, our civilization will survive COVID. Yes. But it's hard to say if civilizations we know would survive COVID. Three or four degrees. Exactly. Climate change is an existential threat. And COVID is a very real threat, but it's not an existential threat for humanity. And um, should this we government... Wait, wait should, on COVID? Sorry. No, we should not be waiting on COVID. I don't think we should at all. Um, and we haven't actually at Greenpeace. We've been campaigning. Um, it's felt uh, busier and more relentless okay. than ever, I have to say. How does? How do you get your message about this past those people that are already doing climate action. Sorry, can you repeat? How do you reach the general public? Um, One of the things that Greenpeace has done over the last 50 years as well is um, mass communication. That's something I think that we're really good at is picking issues that are super important for the environment, but also capture hearts and minds. And so one of the things that we do is make sure that we have really great images of the problems that we're fighting so that um, so that people can see it for themselves. Um, it's back to that Quaker principle of bearing witness. If you can see the problem, um, you can understand the problem. And that's part of the problem with climate change as a whole is it's hard to, hard to see, feel, touch. Um, so it's about bringing that to life for people and showing people um, what that means in reality. Unfortunately, actually, it's becoming more and more something you can see and feel and touch. Yes. Yes, unfortunately, it, it really is. If, you listen, if you've ever lived on the west coast of North America or Canada, 
is no longer tomorrow's problem. Well, that's right. Or even the west coast of New Zealand, who saw some pretty extreme flooding not that long ago. Um, but I'm not sure that New Zealand took that flooding to heart. As I mean, if they thought about it, they realized it was sort of part of climate change, but not the kind. It wasn't the urgency that there should there should be. Yeah, I think that comes back a little bit to to the um, the scientists being a little bit hesitant, as you said. Um, in previous years, I think people were very um, hesitant to directly link extreme weather events to climate change. Um, and they were like, oh, well, it's hard to know if this one is to do with climate change or not. Um, but I think people are becoming much more outspoken. The scientists are becoming much more outspoken that we actually can attribute a lot of the extreme weather events we're seeing to climate change. You don't see multiple one in a hundred year storms and not attribute that to climate change. Mm. How do you, uh, do we need to actually directly approach, I mean, directly confront um, the milk industry? Uh, Fonterra, basically. Fonterra is 90% of the problem when it comes to dairy. Fonterra is part of the problem. Um, at Greenpeace, we actually, at the moment, are more concerned about the fertilizer industry. Not more concerned, but that's that's where we're choosing to focus right now. Um, because synthetic nitrogen fertilizer um, causes climate pollution. Um, it's created using fossil fuels. Um, it actually has a it actually causes more climate pollution than our entire pre-COVID domestic aviation. And that's before it's on the farm. And then once it's on the farm, um, it allows there to be far too many cows that, as we said, um, <laughs> create the methane pollution. So, so it's not just about Fonterra. It's about the whole industry that's working there and the industries that are um, allowing the, allowing okay. this industrial agricultural system. How do you directly confront the nitrogen industry then? Um, well, it's it's fairly straightforward, actually. So we've got two main companies that produce and distribute synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, and it's Ravensdown and Balance. Um, funnily enough, they're also the same people who consult to farmers around how much fertilizer they should be using. Um, so the same people that are um, selling it are the people that tell you how much you need. Um, and they obviously have storefronts and they have businesses and um so we're, we're obviously doing a lot of time lobbying governments on regulating that industry, but also taking direct action against that industry. Um, just before COVID, we had um, we went and slimed Ravensdown's headquarters, actually, <laughs> where we poured um, algal blooms down the side of their building to bring the problem to them. Um, because while Fonterra is this big um, conglomerate that everyone in New Zealand knows. These companies are lesser known, but are hugely contributing to the climate change problem. So I think it's really about making sure that they are held accountable for the pollution that they're part of causing. So you're planning actions around um, fertilizer plants? Well, we're we're planning to continue campaigning on synthetic nitrogen fertilizer until until we see a phase out. Um, we were really successful in getting a cap on the amount of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer that is allowed to be used. Um, and that was a huge milestone moment where instead of um, saying how much pollution could come off a farm, we started talking about how much pollution could go onto a farm in the first place. Um, but that cap is still way too high. So we're working to get it lowered um, into a full phase out. So we will be continuing to work on that for as long as it takes to get there. We can have successful agriculture, at least meet our needs, without using nitrogen, can't we? Yeah, we absolutely can. And it's not just we can have an agriculture sector. We must have agriculture, you know. Farming is, is essential. And it's only in the last 40 years that farming in New Zealand has been so unsustainable. Um, there are ways to do this differently. It's not like the fossil fuel industry where we say that actually the whole thing's got to go. Um, it's we need farmers, we need farming, um, we need to work with the system to make sure that they can change and do things and they need to be supported by the government to make these changes as well as have their pollution regulated. 
Okay. What kind of country would you like to see New Zealand to be in 20 years' time? I'd like to see it as a much more equal country where we uphold Tetsuritio Waitangi, um, where we've taken sufficient climate action, um, where all people can um, thrive and nature can thrive and we can live in harmony with nature here. Do you think that countries that have more equality and have good health services and good education are more likely to be environmentally friendly and more likely to have a, a population they can sustain? I think there's an interesting um, correlation between inequality and your ability to, to take activism and, and care about the environment, right? You have to be able to put food on your table and, and have your health seen too. Um, so I do think if we look after people, people are able to look after the environment better. And people are able to make better choices. For instance, in Italy and Spain, uh, the health and education of people have increased markedly in the last 50 years. And at the same time, populations decreased in these Catholic countries. So it's not just religious ideology. It's the kind of infrastructure you have, the kind of way people feel about their own security and they're available for health and education. Yeah, that's right. And it's not just about people being able to make better choices. It's about people to being able to make choices full stop. Um, a lot of people um, in Aotearoa at the moment don't have a lot of choices about how they live. And um, and I would like to see a land where they can, where they do have those choices. Well, it's like what you were talking about, cars. If uh, you had proper public transport, you could have a choice of whether you drove a car or not, or how often yeah. you drove a car. Or you can have a choice. You really wouldn't have to, in a fairer country, you probably wouldn't have to work in an industry you consider unethical or go hungry. Yeah, and, and you wouldn't have to make the choice between paying for your groceries or paying for your power bill. Yeah. Well, um, let's produce a country of hope. Let's and do thanks that. a lot for coming on board. Great, thanks for having me, Martin. Thanks. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.